This morning we're going to finish up 1 Timothy. If you turn to chapter 6, we'll pick up in verse 11. And the message I've entitled, A Few Final Thoughts. Now, Paul, like all good pastors, occasionally had trouble finishing a sermon. And that's kind of where this is this morning. Every once in a while, I'm like, oh, Lord, I know you want to say a couple more things. And so here at the end of this book, he says a couple more things. And I want you to notice that right to the very end, he says, you know, Timothy, guard what's been committed into your trust. He, he is ministering to Timothy right to the very end of this letter. And, and I think it gives us a picture of ministry in general. We're not ever done. Uh, we, we should finish well. We should finish strong. He's going to use some verbs here that are showing us the type of effort that's necessary for us to really finish well in the Lord. He's going to pick up on a theme that he's already spoken on, and he's going to reiterate a couple of things, but they are so important to us. Because I think very often we almost kind of think that we can slide into heaven. You know, we've, we've walked with the Lord for a while. It's just like, well, you know, I'm saved, and I'm doing good, and my family's doing good, and I'm just going to kind of slide into heaven. God doesn't want us to slide into heaven. God wants us to bound in in glory. He, he wants us to have run well. He wants us to finish strong. He wants us to matter more at the end of our lives in the way that we serve Him than we did at the beginning of our walk with the Lord. We should be moving, as Scripture declares, just like He brings His glory, but glory to glory. In other words, we shouldn't be satisfied. As I've shared with you before, I believe in the church there should be a holy dissatisfaction. And I don't mean that you beat yourself up. I don't mean just as we just heard in that beautiful song. We need to let God have the past, but we should be pressing on in the future to be better than we were yesterday. To look at our lives and say, you know what, I can, I can be used of the Lord in a greater way. And so these final thoughts that Paul gives to Timothy, uh, I believe give us a picture uh, of that aspect of our lives of let's finish well. Let's not see how close we can get to failure. Let's see how great we can be before He comes and gets us or we go home one at a time. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father God, we come this morning, Lord, having been blessed. Lord, thank You for Bob and his gift. And we pray that You would minister now to us through the power of Your Word. And Lord, as we study it, as we open it up, Lord, make our minds to receive these words, Lord, not just as the words of man, but your very instruction to us as your children. We thank you, God, for the power of your word. We thank you for the blessing of your word. And we pray now that we would be strengthened and encouraged, Lord, to go out and run the race, Lord, to win. We thank you, we praise you, we bless you, and we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Here in verse 11, But you, O man of God, flee these things. Would you circle that word flee? Because it's extremely active and it requires a very definite position on your part. We see the word flee and it should mean something to us immediately. And I want you to pick up on this because he's talking about the negative things that he's just 
spoken of with regard to false teaching. And so all these things that we shouldn't do, and whether it's that focus on materialism or false teaching, all of those things which were presented as sin, as negative, we are to run away from them. Not see how close we can stay to the things of the world. Do you understand the difference between those two things? Fleeing means that you pick up your feet and you move the opposite direction from where that dangerous act of sin is. And so very often I hear, especially with kids, they will ask me questions like, well, you know, what amount of making out is sin? What amount of smoking pot is sin? What amount of having alcohol is sin? What amount of driving too fast is sin? What of this and what of that gets me far enough away that I'm not in sin? And they're asking the wrong question. The question should be, how far can I get from sin, not how close can I stay and not sin? Family of God, this is a problem in the body of Christ. The body of Christ has become just like the world in some degree. Because we have tried to establish a boundary that as long as I stay on this side of the line, I'm okay. As long as I don't have five beers, if I only have four beers, I'm okay. As long as we don't go all the way, I'm okay. As long as I don't smoke too much pot, because after all, it can be used medicinally, I'm okay. As long as I only tell lies that don't, you know, really cause anybody any major grief, I'm okay. Scripture declares, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It says here, but you, O man of God, O woman of God, O child of God, someone who names the name of Jesus, especially if you're in ministry, flee these things. Run away. We are bombarded. Remember the context here actually is materialism. We are bombarded constantly with a, with a message that says you need to live the way the world lives. I was watching yesterday, you know, now they have 4D TV. You, you get a 3D TV and then you get like smell-o-vision with it. You know, it's like this sensor thing that puts out smells and wind and everything. It's crazy. We're being told nothing is satisfactory. We need to have the next thing. We need to be attached to the world system. I don't need this amount of money. I need this amount of money because I need more of everything. And the picture is here, run from it. We need to get away occasionally. We need to, we need to pick up our feet and move away from the things of the world. He says, flee these things. He goes on to say, pursue righteousness. So I'm fleeing the things of the world, and I'm pursuing the things of God. Are those two places not exactly polar opposite? I'm fleeing the things of the world, and I'm pursuing the things of God. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. You know what? You're not really going to do that if you're pursuing the things of the world. You're just simply not. Sometimes I wonder if vacations aren't just another place to shop. Amen? You ever notice that? You go on vacations like, oh, there's a new mall. I've never been to that mall. 
We need to flee these things and pursue God. And I'm not saying if you went shopping on vacation, you're in sin. But what I am saying is, if we're not fleeing the things that are the things of the world, and we're not pursuing the things of God, then no matter where you go, you're going to get caught up in the world's stuff. All of a sudden, you're going to be sitting there going, wow, this is kind of a mess. These things that are listed here are certainly the same things as we find in the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, that Galatians 5 passage. It's also something that we already saw back in chapter 3 as qualifications for deacons and elders. You know, sometimes I wonder, and I like to use the analogy of just simply getting out in God's creation. You know, when you get out in God's creation, isn't it amazing how very simple things are so meaningful? You know, you get out, you enjoy a sunset, you smell the pine trees, you, you, you're you out there and you're having dominion over the fish. You, you know, you, you, you're exercising your authority over them and... You know, your, your, your muscles, and have you ever laid on a rock out in a meadow and just felt the sun on your body and all of a sudden you don't ache anymore, so instead of taking a leave, you're just getting some sun? You're, you, there's all kinds of things that are basically free that are as deep and as enjoyable as anything else that we do in this life, and, and yet we, we kind of run towards the things of the world. I was down, and, and for those of you, if you've never seen one, if you watch, you know, the, the Animal Planet channel, which is full of ridiculous, absurd things, but if you've ever seen a savanna cat, they're actually like this African cat that's been domesticated, and they are very cool. They're, you know, they're like 35 pounds. when they, They're huge. They can get up on your tables and stuff like that. So I'm not suggesting you go buy one. But we were driving down because we were going to the Holy of Holies there at the Bass Pro Shops yesterday, and... And I and I went to enter into the holiness of the, of the shopping center, and as I drove in, and my mind was enraptured with all those things, and I pictured the lures there on the shelves. And you get the picture. You know, you ever have those things? I'm sure you all have places where you just like your brain just gets spinning. And we turn the corner, and and my wife says, "That said Savannah Cat Shop," and I'm thinking to myself, "There is no way there's a Savannah Cat Shop. You're like hallucinating." And sure enough, we turn the corner and we go into the parking lot there by, if you've never been to it, the hat, which serves the most wicked pastrami sandwich on the face of the earth. But I'm not caught up in any of these things. Only you are. But as I turned the corner there and we pulled into the parking lot, and sure enough, it said Savannah Cat Shop. So we decided we're going to go in because I've never seen one except on TV. And we walk in and there's, there's four kittens. And they're in a the basket about this big. And then there's two adult cats in there, and they're very cool looking. They're kind of spotted. They look like kind of like a cross between a leopard and a tiger, and they're short. And they're and my son, Austin, just, you know, he, he loves Savannah cats. He always wants to see we walk in there, and we're staring at them. And so I get the guts. I'm going to ask the guy, okay, well, how much are they? Three to five thousand dollars. This little basket had twelve thousand dollars worth of kittens in it. And, and I'm thinking to myself, let's see, let's, devo- let's do the math here. Okay, they live 10 years. That's an expensive cat. Yeah, and, and this is such a picture of the world. It's like, who needs a $5,000 cat? They don't care about you. <laughs> Cats are not pets. They're, they're, they're demons and fur. 
that you have to feed. But this is the way the world is. The world, you know, now we have stores that sell five thousand dollar cats. That's the world. The world's always going to come up with some new way to to empty your pockets. And some new thing that you have to have that's better than the old thing that you currently have or might have have had. You see, there's no satiating that part of your humanness. You have to flee it. You've got to run the other way. You've got to do the things necessary. And, of course, I'm not picking on anybody if you went shopping yesterday. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the things of the world are very attractive to our flesh. And there's no amount of it that will ever fix that part of you. The only thing that can happen is if you choose another direction. You're going to move towards godliness, which we already saw with contentment is great gain. Amen? You, you see, you could buy a $5,000 cat. You could get, we walked in there, and, you know, they have the boats as you first go in, and you, you look at them and go, wow, that's a really nice boat. But you know what? There's no amount, if you've ever owned boats, what, here's what happens. You first get a canoe. And then you get a little flat-bottom John boat, and then you get one that's like 12 foot long, and it has a 15-horse motor on it. And then you get one that's 17 feet long, and it has a 40-horse motor on it. And before you know it, it's just constantly trading up, and so it is with everything in life. And before you know it, you're looking, well, honey, it's only 70 grand. They don't tell you that you can't catch any more fish in the $70,000 one than you can in the canoe. You see, that's the world. The world just keeps us sucked into that whole environment. And so, instead of focusing on the things of the world, he says, focus on righteousness. That refers to actions that are morally upright in line with God's purposes, plans, and principles for you. Morally upright that are God's purposes, plans, and absolute principles for you. The things that God would want for you, you should want for yourself. He says godliness. Now those are the actions that you undertake in life to exude God's character. Godliness are those things which we actually go do that are most Christ-like. That's, that's where we need to focus. He adds to that faith and love. These are the things that are fundamental to who you are in Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave Himself. You, you see, but when we're tied into the world system, ultimately we're drawn away by that system, and instead of operating in godliness and righteousness and faith and love, and this next one, which is the hardest one of all for us in our modern day and time, patience, I I, I might need to wait on the Lord for Him to accomplish something in someone else's life or in my life or in this world that I can't have everything that I want right here and right now. And it actually is a Greek word that we would translate endurance just as much. You see, some of life is enduring and letting God work out the details. They're not us going and grabbing everything that we can. The world says life is what you make it. Amen? That's what the world says. God says life is what I make it. He he has a perfect plan for you. And He wants to cause that perfect plan to come about. But so often the problem is you and me. We mess it up. 
We don't wait on the Lord. We're not looking to be patient. We're certainly not enduring anything. Matter of fact, when something comes our way, the last thing we want to do is endure it. We try and get over it as quickly as we can. And again, I'm not suggesting that you go hurt yourself and, okay, well, I'm enduring for the Lord. But what we do have to understand is God's principles are exactly the opposite of the world's principles. They're not the same. There is no way to reconcile them. God wants us to do things His way. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience. And then He adds another characteristic, gentleness. Almost seems like an odd quality when you're talking about fleeing or pursuing or going after something. It's wonderful. But in gentleness, it's power under control. It's often translated meekness. It's roughly the same word. It means that the power of God in you is used for God's purposes, and that will never hurt someone else. It's not used as a way for you to get what you want. It's used as a way for God to get what He wants, to accomplish His plan and His purpose in your life and in the lives of others. And so basically he says here, use this righteousness and this godly character to become a gentle leader, to show other people the way to live this life. And we're not going to have much impact in our world if we do things exactly the same way the world does them. We pursue the same things the world does. If we sit so close to sin that the world cannot tell the difference between the body of Christ and those who are not saved, we need to be different. And it will come out in our character. It will come out in our actions. It will come out in the way that we bear those things into this world that we walk in. And he goes on in verse 12 now to say, fight the good fight of faith. Does that sound passive to you? It's not passive. The walk that we walk is a battle. You're going to have fights on your hand. The enemy's not going to give up in your life. Matter of fact, the tense of the Greek verb here implies that there's diligence and discipline, and in fact, the word that is translated here, fight, is actually the Greek word that means to agonize over. It, it, it means that at times you're going to have to choose between agonizing over the things of God or being swept up in the things of the world. In other words, there are going to be hard choices. There are going to be things that you're going to actually have to turn down that the world offers you, and you're going to have to take something from the Lord that maybe you think is not all that pleasant. You know, so very often we, we get the wrong impression of God that, you know, as soon as we commit our life to Christ, everything's just going to be perfect. That all of a sudden we'll wake up one day and we'll never have another problem, another sickness. Our kids will do everything we tell them to do. They'll clean their rooms. Hallelujah! Got the name it, name it and claim it crowd over here. I received that there in the third. No, we think all of a sudden those things are going to change. The enemy's not going to give up. Matter of fact, he turns up the heat, doesn't he? Those of you who are a little more senior saints, you will bear witness to this, that in fact your life becomes sometimes immeasurably more difficult when you decide to follow after Christ. Because the tools that you used to have that are attached to the world, you should be giving up. You know, it comes time for you to fill out all those forms and, and do your taxes, you know, and all of a sudden you've got to tell the truth. 
You know those 17 kids you never have, you actually can't claim anymore. You know that second home that's actually the tent in your garage, you cannot claim anymore. And you've got to actually pay taxes on that money. And all of a sudden, Caesar's lump is bigger than you want it to be. But to do the right thing is to flee sin. It's to turn and say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to live my life by faith. I'm going to trust you. Your word declares these are the things I need to do, and I'm going to do them. And it may make your life tougher. You have to step out in that diligence and that discipline. And it goes on to say there in the second part of verse 12, Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It's to seize it. It's to lay hold of it. It's to grab on to what God has grabbed hold of you for. There is a purpose for you. You, you, you see, there's agony in competition. If you've ever competed in anything, you don't get good at anything by osmosis. Amen? I don't care how long you stand next to Dirk Nowitzki, you're not going to become a good basketball player. Okay? It isn't going to happen. I don't care how, how many times you go down on the field at a baseball game, you will not all of a sudden have a 600 slugging percentage. Doesn't matter how many times you go to a football game and you sit close to the bench, you're not going to become a good quarterback or receiver. It doesn't happen that way. You got to go out, you got to do the two a day practices. You've got to go in the batting cage and swing the bat. You have to go out and actively engage in anything that you want to be good at. It takes work and very often pain. You know, I can tell you as someone who's had a lot of athletic endeavor in his life, There is no way to become a good long-distance runner except to run. And you know what? It is not that much fun. Anybody who tells you, well, I really enjoy running 27.6 miles, they're insane. (laughs) They're crazy. You're out there on the road and your shins are killing you, your knees hurt, your hips hurt, your head is throbbing, your chest is pounding. It hurts. But if you want to be good, there is no shortcut. It takes diligence It takes discipline, and it takes effort in order to become good at anything, including your walk with the Lord. What you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. That's why so many Christians are ineffective. They are not looking at this going, you know what? I'm going to fight the good fight of faith. I'm going to seize those things which God wants to do in my life. You see, it's the prize that motivates the prize fighter, isn't it? I, anybody that tells me that some guy gets into a boxing ring with somebody else and they beat each other mercilessly for an hour, that they're doing that because they love to get beat mercilessly for an hour, I'm going to say you have a severe problem that needs the attention of a psychiatrist. Okay, nobody does it for that reason. Why do they do it? The purse, the prize, the belt. They're looking for those rewards that comes from the pugilistic endeavor. It is the same in your walk with the Lord. If you're in it just because, oh, I want to suffer. You know, I just can't wait to be a living sacrifice. I am so anxious to be beat up and just chewed up by the world. I just want, no, you're running the race because there's a prize that awaits you. Amen? It is the reward. It's the glory of heaven. It's a heavenly life now that leads to an eternal heavenly life later that is in the fullness of the glory of God. I'm running for a purpose. I'm practicing for a purpose. I'm engaged in my walk with the Lord for a purpose. 
I need to get going with the training program. And so Paul encourages Timothy. He says, man, it's going to be tough. But go run. Go fight. Get in the training program. Do what you need to do. Be the very best that you can possibly be. Don't be passive in your walk. Go out and do what God's called you to do. And give it all you've got. You know, the wonder of of sports in general is you don't necessarily have to win. You just have to do as good as you can, and you will find that there absolutely is satisfaction in doing the best that you can. First time I ever went out on a golf course, I think I shot a 138 or something. For those of you that know, 72 is par in a general, generally on a course. That's kind of where you want to be. Break 100 is really good. 138 is like, please don't ever come back. Don't do it. But I got hooked because one shot I think I put down the middle of the fairway, I know I can do two. And after a while, you're out there just like, I know I can break 120. I know I can break 110. I know I can break 100. I can break 90. I can break 80. I got down to a four handicap. Pretty good golf. But I'll tell you what, I hit a lot of golf balls to get there. You you don't get that way overnight. Anything that's worth doing takes effort. And it takes repeated effort. And almost always that is boring. It's not a lot of fun. And when somebody tells you, I just love the book of Deuteronomy, I think they're crazy. You know, you, you enjoy reading Leviticus, there's something wrong with you. People will tell you, well, I don't even read the begats. Yeah, who wants to know who Zahor begat? Nobody cares. But it takes effort, doesn't it? You read through those and you go, oh, I remember that guy from somewhere else in Scripture. Now I know how he came on the scene. You wouldn't have got that unless you read through the parts of Scripture that's like, oh, that's kind of boring. Can I tell you, a lot of life is basically boring. You get up, you do the same thing every day. We need to get going. We, we need to not be passive in our walk with the Lord. Verse 13, he goes on to say, For I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things. He, he's saying keep these commands. Keep that close fellowship with God. Make sure you're right where you need to be. You, you see, God's the one that does these things in us. He's the one who is our motivation ultimately. I want to be well-pleasing to the Lord. I, I want God to look at my life and go, that was really well done for me. Now, I may be able to do things that you can't. You may be able to do things that I can't. There are gifts given to the body of Christ that are not distributed equally. But he's given us all some things that we can do for the kingdom. And we need to do them. In verse 14, he says, To keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice this. We need to take action. We need to have that action be meaningful. We need to endure. We need to do what's necessary to achieve the prize which awaits us. We're to keep that command until, notice how long you're supposed to do this, until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So do we ever arrive in our walks with the Lord? The answer is no. We're supposed to be transitioning from glory to glory. 
I'm supposed to be better tomorrow than I was today. I'm supposed to be doing more for the kingdom than I did last week. It is a constant state of flux where I am getting more like Jesus than I was the day before. That's why when we see Christian stagnation, it's so hurtful to the body of Christ. Because people look at those people who should be doing more for the kingdom and they're doing nothing, and they say, well, that's my example. We, we need to be stepping it up. And so he says here, until the appearing of the Lord. Now, there's two ways that you're going to see the appearing of the Lord, principally. You're either going to die and see him one at a time, because it is appointed unto man one time to die and in judgment, or... Of the sound of that trumpet, and the dead in Christ rise, and we who are alive and remain meet him in the air. Because you're not going to be sticking around for the tribulation, so you don't need to know that. But here's the plan. From now until that happens, whether you die in natural causes, you get run over by a bus, whatever happens, God's plan for you, your life is over and you go to be with him, or until he comes and gets his church, we're supposed to be doing more for the Lord each day. Now, please don't be burdened by that. Because what God has appointed you to do, He's anointed you to do. And what God's anointed you to do, He will give you a desire to do. And as He works those good works in you, you're actually going to enjoy it. You'll, you'll look at those things that God's given you to do, and you won't be able to wait. This afternoon, we've got 420 high schoolers coming into the camp. For some of you, that sounds like I've been sentenced to hell. For me, I'm like, I can't wait to see what God does. He's given me that gift. I look forward to it. It's like uh, that, those smiles on their faces to know what's going to happen, to go to that first chapel, and almost always there's half the students doing business with God. It gets no better than that as far as I'm concerned. For some of you, maybe it's feeding someone who's homeless. Maybe it's ministering one-on-one with somebody. Maybe you have that very special gift of taking that problem person and sharing the love of God with them. You see, we don't all have the same gifts, but God's given you gifts. And you get to use that in a greater way each day as time passes until He takes us home. Praise the Lord. I can't tell you how many moms I've seen that are ministering to other mothers. I can't tell you how many teachers are ministering to students. As you look at your life lived out, God has a perfect plan for you. But you need to be actively engaged in that perfect plan. I'm going to have to get in my car and drive to the camp. It isn't going to happen if I stay here. I've got to go there. It takes effort. It takes work. Notice that this whole process comes about, verse 15, which God will bring about in his own time. Speaking of the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying that's going to happen when he's good and ready for it to happen. It's God's timetable. You know what? I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the perspective. I am not God. And that is exactly why Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man comes. Only God knows when that's going to occur. The good news is, we're not supposed to worry about that part. We're supposed to do our part. I don't need to be God. I just need to be Godly. I need to be what I'm supposed to be. I need to be actively engaged in that part of what God's called me to do. He goes on to say, 
He who is blessed and the only sovereign. I love this because it's a doxology. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. In other words, he is both the King of kings, which means he has total control of everything on earth, and he is Lord of lords, total control of everything that is in heaven. We don't have to worry about his plan falling apart. We don't have to worry about his timing being off. He has it perfectly under control. So when I embark to do God's will... I am seeking the very best for me and for this world, and ultimately works towards heaven. I I don't have to worry about God being, you know, well, he didn't quite get those details right. We never saw that coming. I'm amazed at how many people actually believe that God can be surprised. I will often ask kids the question, do you believe God can be surprised? They'll say, yes. Nothing is new to God. Nothing catches him by surprise. There's no new information. He can't be taught anything. He knows everything that will ever be known. He sees every circumstance as if it had already happened. And in that, he has complete wisdom. His perspective is perfect. Mine is not. I see through human eyes. Yes, I'm led by the Spirit. Yes, I have some insight into certain situations, but not like God. I get a little glimpse. He has the whole picture in front of him. He sees it perfectly. I see it through a mirror dimly, as Paul said. goes on in verse 16, It is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see, and to him be honor and eternal dominion. So when you start that journey, when you step out in faith, when you move ahead, when you flee the things of the world, you're fleeing towards the one who has eternal dominion over all things. You're going from the bad plan to the good plan. You're going from it's really messed up to it's really awesome. And sometimes people will say, well, you know, I, when I started walking with the Lord, I was going to have to give up this, I was going to have to give up that. They always tell me what they're going to have to give up. And they list all these things. And I'm going, if God is eternal in the heavens, and He is the King of earth, and He is the Lord of heaven, and consequently the Lord of both places, do you not think that He has the best plan there is? He does. So when we give him praise to his name and we call him Lord, we're calling him Master, we're saying, God, I want what you want for me. I no longer want what I want. Because what I want is that 56-inch plasma screen to watch sports on. What I want is a new car when the one I have already. You see, what I want in my human flesh is things that God knows I not only don't need, but they're distracting. You, You see, God has a perfect plan. He established that uh, before the foundations of the world were even laid. And, and so he alone exists in that bright, glorious light of heaven. We just get a little glimpse of it. You have it in you now. You now are the light of the world as the disciples of Christ. And so that light that you show the world is not supposed to be the darkness of this earth. Amen? It's supposed to be different. And that way the world sees who God is. We are pretty much the the glimpse of heaven that people get to see. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Can we not do better at that at times? I know I can. I know I can be more patient. I can be more gentle. I can be more kind. I can do this. Even as much as I endeavor to be those things now, I know I can do better. In verse 17, he 
again, giving these just kind of closing things. It's like he, he's speaking to him and he's saying, man, and don't forget this and don't forget that and don't forget this. And remember to lay hold of these truths. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor trust in uncertain riches. He's kind of adding to this. He's saying, you know what, the, the, the mindset of the average human being is, is when we have the things of this life, we feel satisfied in them. We sit around, it's just like, well, you know, it's really nice. We were sitting out on our porch on our side deck yesterday, and we got all these lilac bushes and roses and stuff growing. It's just nice. And you're just sitting there. Man, it's so easy. I'm not even going to move. I'm just going to stay right here. You know, could somebody just give me some iced tea? You know, after a while, and that's kind of the way our mind works with regard to the things of this life. If it's too comfortable and you don't get out much, before you know it, you're happy in this world. You're not supposed to be happy in this world. You're supposed to be desiring heaven. Now, does that mean that your life needs to be a bummer? Of course not. Go enjoy that vacation. He's given you all things richly to enjoy. Go have that wonderful dinner, but don't hope and trust in it. And for sure, don't do what this says, is be haughty. That that means to be high-minded. It means to be arrogant towards God. You see, when I forget that he gave me all those things in the first place, I start to look at the things as if they're the things that make me happy and give me joy. And they don't. It is the context in which I possess them that they give me joy. You know, when I sit around and thank God for the things that he's done in my life, and I'm enjoying that place that I'm sitting, I look at my wife of 35 years and go, Lord, you've been so good to me. When I look at my children, I go, thank you, God, that they're walking with you. When I look at this church, I go, Lord, what you have done. You see, that puts those things in their proper perspective. But if I think I did that, then eventually I have the wrong perspective on how it came about. My life is a work of God. And the glory should go to Him. Everything that I have, everything that I will ever be, is because of Him. When we have that perspective, we have the right perspective. And that's why the focus here was last week, and it is kind of here at the end, on money. Because the desire for wealth is insatiable. The promises of wealth are very illusionary. Uh, the, the, The presence of wealth in our life very often is temporary. It has a tendency, wealth can bend us towards selfishness and self sufficiency. And so it's not that it's bad in and of itself. But it can sure be distracting. And so we have to be careful with it. Why Paul said back there in verse 7, he said, we brought nothing into this world. We're not taking anything out. So make sure it has its right place. Verse 18, let them do good that they be rich in good works, not stuff. Again, nothing wrong with wealth providing it's held in the context of God's gift to us, and we use it for His glory. Be ready to give and willing to share. But when all of a sudden the accumulation of stuff becomes preeminent, when those things begin to possess you instead of you possessing those things for the glory of God, then it becomes problematic. And so it puts the emphasis on here, are you willing to give it away? Does it actually still belong to God? Can he just say to you, you know what, this is what I want you to do, and you do it. And again, don't take extreme points of view here. 
Again, I am not saying to you, you know, if you've got too much money in the bank, there's something wrong with you. It's not what I'm saying at all. I'm simply saying that God's word declares that our possessions should not possess us, but we possess them to the glory of God. And if that's not the case, then they're out of order. They become distractions. They become weights. They become things that keep us from running, keep us from going where God wants us to go. I've bumped into so many people that really have a heart's desire to serve the Lord, but they can't. They can't because they are so bound to this world. They're so tied into the things that are here on this earth that will not last that they can't do anything for the Lord. They can't even get to church. They can't attend a Bible study. They certainly couldn't go on a mission trip. If it were only for a week, they couldn't go. When it gets to that place, it's out of order. When you can't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, when you're so bound up by attachment to this world that you're possessed of your possessions, then you need to deal with it. Verse 19, and in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. That's good works. The things that we do for Christ will last And those are the only things that will last. So that they may take hold of, notice this, the life that is truly life. The life that we live in Christ Jesus and the fullness of it is the life, family of God. There is nothing better. There is no greater way to live your life but in total reckless abandon for Christ Jesus. And I didn't say stupidity. And I didn't say foolishness. I didn't say lack of wisdom. I said total abandon. In other words, there's nothing that you won't do for Christ. There's nothing that you have that you won't give if He asks. There's nothing that you won't attempt to be if He enables you to go that direction. It just simply means that He is your everything. He is your life. That's why Jesus said there in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moths and rust can destroy, where thieves can break in and steal. Don't do it. He said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I think one of the most wonderful things that we're going to experience when we get to heaven is is standing there looking at, at who's there and going, I never knew. Uh, that that time that you took time to speak to that person who was on the side of the road, and you pulled over to help them with their flat tire, and you just simply said that Jesus told you to pull over and help them. And it got them thinking about Christ. And then someone else came and watered that seed that you planted, and someone else shared the gospel in fullness with them. And they're going to be standing there because you took time out of your busy schedule to pull over and say, you know what, Jesus loves you. You you took time to pull over in the median and hand that guy five bucks and in the same breath say, you know what, Jesus Christ cares that you're standing on this street corner right now. And he has a perfect plan for your life. You'll never know. But those are treasures for heaven. They're not treasures for now. You're going to be five bucks shorter and you're going to have to smell that smell. And I don't say that to disrespect anyone. It takes effort. It takes discipline. You've got to go do it. 
There's no way to get those things apart from doing those things. It's treasure for later. Your heavenly investment portfolio is going to be made up of one thing. People. That's it. It's not going to be Sparky the Wonder Dog. It isn't going to be your house. It's not going to be cars. It isn't going to be a bank account. It's going to be what happened in Jesus' name in the lives of people. That's it. That's what matters. That's the only thing that's going to heaven from this earth is people. Souls. That's why Jesus said there in John 17, And this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's eternal life. That's you knowing God and telling other people about him through Jesus. And so he wraps this up by saying, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. You know the reason that I believe we need to be so active with our faith is this is what everyone is hearing. The godless chatter. The, the spew that comes out of the television. The, the progressive worldview that says, you know, well, you know, I, I think we need to enact laws that in essence, protect sin. It's godlessness. And if we start worrying about more about those things than we do about souls getting to heaven, we're going to have the wrong view. We're going to be so engaged in the culture that we'll forget to have an engagement with the culture. We'll no longer be a salt and light in this world. We'll just simply be neutralized because we'll be worried about the mindless, godless chatter. You see, when someone comes to me and says, well, you know, I, I just think we need to, you know, to do these things that are seemingly more all-inclusive. I want to draw your attention to what I said on Wednesday night. God's commands are God's commands. So when he commands something or he declares that something is right or something is wrong, that's not up to us to determine whether it's something else. We receive it, we believe it, and we do it. But this godless chatter, oh, it sounds all-inclusive. We need more civil rights for homosexuals. We need to make sure that everyone has right to an abortion. We need to enact more laws that protect things that God calls an abomination. That's godless chatter. And we need to stop listening to it and stop going that direction. Notice the result which some have professed and in doing so have wandered from the faith. How many Christians have an unbiblical worldview? How many Christians believe what the talk shows say over what the Bible says? I can tell you it's a lot. You see, if I'm walking the walk and talking the talk, and if I'm willing to put forth the effort, then I'm also going to be able to stand and disagree with people who are speaking godlessness and purporting it to be truth. I'm going to have an effect in the world. You know, I really don't want to hear that I had an opportunity to tell someone the truth and I missed out on it 
because I was afraid of what they might think. I don't want to disagree with somebody because, you know, after all, uh, the move in our country is this direction now. The move in our country is towards godlessness. And it should not be the way the church is going. We should be the ones that stand up and say, no, I'm not going that way. I'm running away from sin. I'm not running towards it. And in doing so, I tell people the truth, and I tell that truth in godliness and in meekness and in humility and in love. And all of a sudden, there's still a voice in this world for godliness and patience. And in doing so, we then have an effect on the world that we walk in. But if we give up on God's standards, we become part of the chatter. When we start getting our exegesis from Oprah, when we start getting our counsel from Dr. Oz, when Rush Limbaugh becomes our sole voice, and yes, I'm picking on some of those guys that we call conservatives because they're not right either a large percentage of the time. We need to get our worldview from our Bibles. We need to get how to live our lives from our Bibles. We need to get who to vote for from our Bibles. We need to get who we support from our Bibles. We need to get how we live our lives from our Bibles. When we do that, then the world knows about Jesus. And those things are eternal. They last. May we live out that life that Paul preached and do it with all that's within us and to the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, as we take this time just to acknowledge you in all of this, Lord, we recognize that it is unto you, O Lord, that belongs the glory and the honor. And Father, we pray that our lives would be transformed into the image of Jesus. We pray that, Lord, as we endeavor to live our lives before your throne of grace, and Father, as we trust you to make the changes necessary in the manner of life that we live, we pray that you'd be glorified in your church. Lord, in us as individuals, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. Lord, in each of us personally, each day, we pray that from glory to glory we'd be changed, that our minds would be renewed. And that, God, that you would be well pleased with the lives that we live. We're grateful for this time this morning in your word, and we pray that you would now take these truths, impart them to us, bless us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.